Hey, are you really a Christian? Well, how can you tell? Who needs to know? Well, sit tight, because today on Focal Point, we'll have our chance to sit down one-on-one with Pastor Mike Fabares to get some clear answers. Welcome to Focal Point with our Bible teacher, Mike Fabares. I'm Dave Drewy. Glad you could join us today. Well, every week at this time, we have a standing appointment with Pastor Mike, where we pose a question from a listener. Today, we're considering the command in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, to examine ourselves. Why do we need to do that? And how exactly do we examine ourselves? Well, let's join Executive Director Jay Wharton inside the pastor's study for this edition of Ask Pastor Mike. Jay? Thank you, Dave. I am here with Pastor Mike. And Pastor Mike, we have a really important question. A listener asks, do I have to keep examining myself to see if I'm a Christian? Wow, that's a big question. And I probably, if I had that person in front of me, would want to ask some follow-up questions, but I don't have that person here. So I would just say, you've got to clearly take the call to examine ourselves, or just to use the words of Jesus, that you'll be able to know them by their fruits. I mean, that has to be a concern of every Christian. You can't just say, well, yeah, I'm following Christ, and then not follow Christ, and say, well, I'm okay. You know, First John chapter 3 is a great chapter, and every Christian should read it, and I think you should read it periodically throughout your Christian life. I mean, I think you should be reading it once every six months, probably, just to read through the necessary connection between a claim to follow Christ and the reality of bearing fruit and following Christ. So, yeah, in one sense, we should be checking to make sure that we're not just big, fat hypocrites. I mean, we don't want to think I've got some ticket to the spiritual Disneyland in the sky in my back pocket because I walked an aisle or prayed a prayer, but my life is no different. One of the marks of Christianity, according to James, is that we're going to bear fruit. I can't say I have faith in Christ and have a living faith, a real faith, a faith that saves if my life doesn't reflect any change. So what if I examine myself and I see a pattern of sinful actions over a long period of time? Is it possible I'm not a Christian? Well, yeah, I mean, it depends on even how you respond to that. I mean, the reality of sin is going to be a part of who we are. I think of James chapter 3, when that great discussion about the tongue being such an unruly part of our body. But James starts that with, we all stumble in many ways. And even in 1 John, the book that's so strong on making us check our lives to see if our walk matches our profession, it speaks of the fact that if we claim we have no sin, we're liars. So we're going to sin. You're going to sin. And you're even going to have recurring patterns of sin, but you've got to see how people respond to that. And, and are they responding with repentance, confession? We're seeing levels of accountability and even remorse and concern over that. It'd be like being a part of some kind of, uh, I'm going to stop smoking group. And I got these guys uh, that we get together on Wednesday nights and we're all there and former smokers. This is just an illustration, Jay, but let's just say <laughs> we're sitting around and, and we're trying to 
stop smoking and we come in smoking and we leave smoking and we even take a break in the middle of our meeting and smoke. I mean, they, they, you'd say, well, these people aren't serious about stopping smoking, right? And, and Christians, they're repenting of their sins and putting their trust in Christ. You can't have a bunch of repentant people who say we've turned from sin if they really give no thought. It's a casual kind of, of adherence to a group that says, yeah, we're against smoking. Oh, let me take a break now. Can we take a break and smoke? I mean, you can't have a cavalier attitude to sin. Sin is going to be something that grieves us. Sin is going to be something we're fighting. Sin is going to be something that we're going to take seriously because the Spirit of God dwells in us, and there's going to be an internal conflict every time we sin that's unlike anything that a non-Christian will experience. So, yeah, a chronic pattern of sin that has no interest in correction, has no interest in repentance, I would say that's a really bad sign. So do I have to be perfect? I mean, can I even be perfect? I mean, what right. if I struggle with sin? No, yeah, and that's why I quoted 1 John chapter 1 that says we can't claim we have no sin. And James chapter 3, verse number 2, that says we all stumble in many ways. Of course, we're not going to be perfect. But by the time we look at James 2 or 1 John 3, to quote the context of both of those statements I just made, there's going to be a difference in how we live. We cannot continue in sin the way we did before. So, no, we're not going to be perfect. Of course not. We're going to stumble. We're going to fail. But when you fail in this group that you're part of that's against, you know, smoking, and now you do light one up on a Friday night behind the house. I mean, yeah, how are you going to respond to that? We're going to stumble. The question is, how do we respond to that? And do we see a pattern? It's not about, as I often say, it's not about perfection, right? It's about direction. Is there a direction of moving toward increasing righteousness in my life? And I think people that really struggle in their conscience about this really are showing that they're increasingly sensitive to sin. In other words, they're really struggling with this because they now have a high bar of sensitivity to any time that they do sin. And I think, well, that's a great sign. That's what Christians do. They feel conviction. And I guarantee you, someone who's a real Christian is going to have a higher sensitivity to sin today than they had as a Christian 10 years ago. There's just a constant refining that the Spirit of God is going to do in our conscience, in our lives, that's going to make uh, sin an increasingly deplorable and detestable thing in our own mind in our own hearts. Maybe you could speak to somebody that is struggling with a pattern of sin, just like you talked about, has that sensitivity to give them some encouragement in their battle against sin. Yeah. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is a great passage that speaks to real repentance, a kind of repentance that has an indignation about their sin, an alarm. I mean, there's a kind of concern that comes to the real Christian who is repentant that's going to keep on sounding the alarm over sin in their lives that is going to do what it takes to try and corral their flesh because of the gracious work of the Spirit, I trust. Obviously, this is not something we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to do, but there's clearly a lot of struggle and effort that's involved in this. As Peter wrote, we make every effort to add to our faith all the virtues of the Christian life. And so we want to be careful that we are not discouraged at the process of growing up in Christ. See the progress, celebrate the progress, celebrate the small steps of any progress in our sanctification. Uh, read the passages that deal with sin. I think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that talk about the things that ought to motivate us to remind us that because there's so much at stake regarding our walk with Christ that it ought to be something that motivates us and moves us on and encourages us. Or as the writer of Hebrews says, 
we ought to get together and stir one another up to love and good deeds. I mean, there's a kind of a, a communal um, corporate aspect to us sharpening one another and, and helping one another and encouraging one another. Obviously, accountability is a part of this. If there's sin in your life, recurring pattern of sin, get a brother in Christ involved. Uh, you know, if you're a gal, get a sister in Christ who loves God and isn't struggling with that same thing to be an accountability partner for you to help you uh, and encourage you in the progress that you should be making in your sanctification. This can be a great encouragement to you because every victory is celebrated, not just by yourself, but by another brother or sister in Christ. So don't be discouraged. Uh, The fight with sin is a good thing in that we recognize that God has given us a passion to follow the Spirit and to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And that's going to be something that's going to be a lifelong battle till we meet Christ face to face. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. That is a really important discussion. And we're going to continue this topic with a message you gave called Watching Out for the Pacifying Benefits of Dating Christ. Dating and marriage are two different things. They require two totally different considerations. When I was 16, I met Carlin. She was 15. And uh, boy, I was taken by her. I was enamored. Still am. By the time I was 17 and she had finally turned 16, uh, we went on our first date. And uh, after three years of dating, I uh, popped the question. And 12 months after that, we walked down an aisle, stood in front of our pastor. We exchanged covenantal marriage vows, and became husband and wife. If I asked you, uh, when did I meet my wife, if you paid attention, you'd say, well, when you were 16. If I asked you, when did I get married, if you did the math real quick, you'd say, well, you must have been uh, 21. We have a problem in the Christian community with the use of a popular phrase that's often posited in a question, and it goes something like this, when did you meet Christ? When were you introduced to the Lord? Nothing wrong with the question. The problem is what people mean when they ask the question and what people mean when they answer the question. Because when people say that, often what they mean is, when did you become a Christian? And people often answer that question with, well, I became a Christian here, and that's when I met Christ. Hmm. Now, if you're reading and studying through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read lots of characters, lots of figures, and if you ask the question, when did Nicodemus meet Christ? You'd have a different answer because you would be in a context that would force you to say, here's where Nicodemus met Christ, or here's where Peter met Christ, or here's where Nathaniel met Christ, or here's where Philip met Christ. But then if I ask you, when did they become a Christian, you would have a different answer. Sometimes you'd say, ah, Gospels say they met Christ, but over here it never says they actually became followers of Christ. If you fall into the pattern of blurring that line, you will, without knowing it, begin to shape your theology in a very unbiblical way that will leave out this very important period that necessarily precedes you becoming a child of God. Because the Scripture is clear. You have a period between being exposed to the teachings of Christ and becoming a follower. That gap for people is different. Some it's short, some it's long, and some have met him and have never come to the place of true conversion. If you're blurry with that, you will necessarily take out a natural and biblical concern that we ought to have about possibly getting stuck in that dating relationship and never moving to the altar. You can't miss that. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. 
which is a passage that is concerned with the danger of being in this period of knowing something about Christ and even experiencing the benefits of Christ, but never getting to the place of biblical repentance and faith. Verse 4. For those who have once been enlightened, five things, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, it's impossible for those, verse 6, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Then he gives an analogy, verse 7, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, that produces a crop useful to those whom, for whom it is farmed, it receives the blessing of God. But the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. And in the end, the analogy finishes, it will be burned. And he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. We learn in chapter 3 and elsewhere in Scripture that the proof of real conversion is longevity in the faith. We've just given a few examples but you and I can probably think of people in our own life who we've watched come associate with, with, with Christianity. They've had a Bible. They've got their name on the front of a Bible. They've been to Sunday school. They've learned verses, but no genuine conversion. Beware of that because the possibility is that you and I could experience a lot in the community of the redeemed and never truly be redeemed. Luke chapter 8, verse 13. The sower and the soils, remember that? He describes the rocky soil this way. The seed goes out and it falls on the soil in the rocky places. And here's how Jesus in verse 13 of Luke 8 describes it. He says, on the rocks are the ones who believe the word of God and they receive it with joy when they hear it. But they have no root. They, here's a big word, believe but only for a while, Jesus said. Because in a time of testing, they fall away. Which leads me to a second passage I want you to jot down. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Jesus said, now remember, Peter was there listening to the parable of the soils. So Jesus taught this and Peter heard it and he knew what he said and he's going to pick up on this phrase in a time of testing. And Peter elaborates on it. He says, you know what? Here's what the time of testing is all about. It's a time of difficulty, a time of trial. It's a time of struggle. It's a time of pain. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6, it says, in this you greatly rejoice. In what? In this great inheritance that's coming for us, reserved in heaven for us. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of, what's the word? Trials. What's a trial? The test. These have come so that, now note this carefully, your faith may be proved, what? Genuine. You have a faith that when put under pressure is tested. And Jesus said if it's tested and it fails, it's not real. If it's tested and it doesn't fail and it endures beyond the testing, then guess what? It's real. And it will produce all kinds of praise and glory when Christ returns. Third passage I want you to jot down. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 should be something we periodically revisit in our personal lives, and that is that we subject ourselves to some evaluation. Paul put it this way, verse number five, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Are you in it? Is it real? He says, now do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. You'd better be analyzing yourself to see whether you're really in. Not in the doors of the church, but in the faith. How's the test? Back to the words of Jesus. Luke chapter 8. 
They believe for a while. Now, what happens if they believe for a while and then they bail out? What does the scripture say? 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they really didn't belong to us. Had they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. What's the point? The bailouts, the temporary faith, the apostates, to put it in theological terms, proved they never had the genuine article to start with. Therefore, we say we better test ourselves. Are these the genuine article or the plastic fruit? Verses 4 and 5 in Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to consider the difference. How can this be a temporary, phony, less than biblical Christianity experience? And then what's the real article look like? Verse number four, it says, who have once been enlightened. They're enlightened. Their minds are enlightened. I put it this way. Here's what one person could say who's dating Christ, and it would be true. Let's put it down this way. I have some new insights. I'm going to church now, and you know what? I'm starting to understand some things. I know some things now that are really changing the way I relate to my wife and how I'm parenting my kids and the business ethics at work. And you know what? Wow, it's really, it's really, really changing things. You come to church, you're going to see the world through a lens and a perspective of biblical truth, and you're going, to, you're going to see the light bulbs pop on in your head. You can do all of that, though, and never be converted. Because if you're really converted, that enlightenment's not going to be, I have some new insights. You can either say that or you can say this, I'm a new person. It's not that I have some new insights. I got a new brain now. As Paul said, I am a new man now. I am a new creature. To go back to our Sunday school memory verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any person's in Christ, he is a new creation. Brand new. But I got some new thoughts. I got some new perspectives. I got some new, new, new ideas and insights. No, I got a new mind now. He's going to change who we are, the, the fabric of our, of our being. Paul called it a new man, a new person. I am a new man in Christ. The old man's dead. That's different. Now, non-Christians can come to church and have lots of new insights, but a real Christian is a new person. They have a new mind in Christ. Ezekiel 11, verse 19. Look at this. I will give them, this is very insightful, an undivided heart. Now, here's the thing. You've got an undivided heart before you come to church, right? You're out there in the world, just a normal person. You're not undivided. You're living for yourself and everything's cool. Problem is, you come to church and you know what happens? Now all of a sudden you're feeling guilty about things you didn't before. And you're being pressed to do things you weren't before. And now all of a sudden, oh, I'm divided. And God looks at the community of the redeemed. He's talking about Israel here after the captivity, bringing them back. And he says, I'm going to give them an undivided heart and I'm going to put a new spirit in them. Paul said, a new man, a new creation. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, a new creation. That's what matters. Am I a new creation? And he says, you're going to put a new spirit in you. And I'm going to, guess what, remove the old hardware, remove the, the, the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And they will follow my decrees and they'll be careful to keep my laws and they will be my people and I will be their God. Different heart. I mean, you can put new programs on your old computer, right? Problem is there's a lot of conflict trying to put the new programs on the old computer. And the Bible says it ain't about that. And people come to church all the time, got the old motherboard, the old hardware, Use a very modern 21st century analogy here. And just keep piling on all those new great programs. They won't work real well, but you'll get them. I mean, some stuff's going to help. Problem is you're trying to work off the old platform. You need a new platform. Do you get the difference here? You can be enlightened, and people are in church all the time, but what we need is a new mind in Christ, a new heart, a new person. Secondly, he says back in Hebrews 6, not only are people once enlightened and then bail out, 
But there are also people who have, look at this, tasted the heavenly gift. Tasted the heavenly gift. And the syntax and grammar of this, it, it, it makes it the focus on the generosity of heaven. Heaven sent generosity coming down from God. Nothing specified here, nothing specific, but the, the, God's gift, his, his generosity coming toward you. Let's put it this way. People can come to church and they're in the community of the redeemed and they start getting what I say, what I call here blessings. And they start to say, I have some new blessings now in my life. I have some new blessings. Now notice this. In the world, there's something we call in theology common grace. Because were it not for common grace, there'd be nothing happening on this planet but bad. But God sends what's called common grace. He allows people to enjoy sunsets and full stomachs and, and carne asada burritos and all kinds of things that they can enjoy even though they're sinners and, and bound for God's wrath one day. They get to enjoy that because of common grace. Here's the thing. People join the party every weekend. They get to experience church with Christians. And God's common grace is poured out and on steroids to us. But one has an inheritance in the eternal kingdom and the other doesn't. And it's hard to tell the difference when they're sitting next to each other in church. Because they experience a lot of emotions in the worship. They experience a lot of edification and preaching. Yeah, they get a lot of common grace, but they don't have salvation. One more, jot it down, and then this one would be good to turn to. Ephesians 1, 5 through 8. Look at the focal point here. Look at the interest. Look at what the, the, the spotlight is on. It's not on the temporal goodies. It's not even on the spiritual goosebumps. It's on something far greater and bigger. And this is where real Christians are they're stuck on this. Ephesians 1, got to pick up the last two words of verse 4 to catch the sentence. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. Even that phrase, you don't hear people that just attend church and get some of the blessings talking about that. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will. To the praise, verse 6, of his glorious, there's the key word, grace. You know what you're going to be focused on in eternity as you get your inheritance? Man, this is incredible. I don't deserve this. Incredible. And here the earthbound, real converted hearts are always focused on and captivated by the grace of God, which he has freely given to us and the one he loves. Real converted Christians don't say, well, I get a lot of blessings being a part of this thing. Man, they are on their knees. They're overwhelmed with grace. And if that hadn't happened to your heart, maybe you're just dating Christ. Because once you get on the other side of this thing, called real Christianity. Something happens to your heart as it relates to grace. You get it and you celebrate it. And that will be your focus and theme throughout eternity. You're listening to Focal Point and a message from Pastor Mike Fabares called Watching Out for the Pacifying Benefits of Dating Christ. You can hear the complete unedited version at focalpointradio.org. Today, you can be among the first to receive a special insider's glimpse of Focal Point by becoming a Focal Point partner. Every month, you'll receive a video message straight from Pastor Mike that outlines some special opportunities just for you. It's our way of connecting with our monthly supporters. Become a Focal Point partner today by calling 888-320-5885 or by going to focalpointradio.org. Well, we can't prevent bad things from happening, but we can make the most of them. And that's why Pastor Mike and the Focal Point team have selected the bumps that are what you climb on as this month's resource. In 30 brief accessible chapters, author and Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe provides solid hope and comfort for those times you're faced with frustration, depression, disappointment, or loneliness. When you give a donation of any amount today to the Ministry of Focal Point, we'll say thanks by sending you this powerful book. 
Request it today when you call us at 888-320-5885. Online, go to focalpointradio.org. You can also write Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Another way to support us is to tell us what radio station you're listening to. We'll thank you with a free pamphlet titled Making Sense of Suffering, written by Johnny Erickson Tata. It's a concise resource that covers five ways suffering can strengthen, not weaken, your walk with God. After a diving accident that left then 17-year-old Johnny Erickson confined to a wheelchair as a quadriplegic, she was forced to process much pain and suffering. While there are no easy answers to life's hardships, you'll learn strategies for finding encouragement and staying focused on the truth. Ask for your free copy when you call 888-320-5885. You can also request the pamphlet Making Sense of Suffering when you go online to focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, wishing you a great weekend ahead. We'll meet you back here for more Bible teaching with Pastor Mike Fabares next time on Focal Point. The program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.